Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, folks looking for Virginia to expand Medicaid are going to have to wait two years. Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe was fighting against a conservative tide, hoping to expand Medicaid in a state. But after much political wrangling during the budget process, Virginia legislature approved a budget that had a measure in effectively blocking the governor from being able to do so. Well, Mark, we've seen some 5 million Americans gain health coverage across the country in states that approved the Medicaid expansion, some 26 states and the District of Columbia. And this would have been a chance for hundreds of thousands of working poor Virginians to get health coverage. But conservative majority won out in this case. McAuliffe had pledged during his recent campaign to make health care a reality for those seeking coverage through Medicaid expansion. The cost to that coverage is fully covered by the federal government for three years. There won't be another chance to expand Medicaid for another two years in Virginia. So not good news for the residents of that state. And not good economic news either, I would imagine. It should be noted, Mark, that a number of conservative states that oppose the Affordable Care Act still opted to expand Medicaid in these states. It makes economic sense bringing billions of health care dollars into the state coffers and allowing millions of economically challenged Americans to gain coverage. We only need to look at Massachusetts to see what that means, Margaret. In a few years since uh, most of the state's residents gained access to coverage, the death rates have gone down between 3 and 4 percent. That's due in large part to folks who have been uninsured before getting good preventative health care. It makes a true difference in people's lives. And our guest today has been working in the trenches of improving health care for Americans for a long time. Alan Weil was the head of the National Academy for State Health Policy. He's now the editor-in-chief of Health Affairs, the peer-reviewed publication for health policy in this country. And we're looking forward to that conversation, Margaret, as well as hearing from Lori Robertson, also checks in from factcheck.org. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Alan Weil in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. For the fifth year in a row, an independent survey done by the Commonwealth Fund has found the U.S. ranks behind all other industrialized nations when it comes to value and outcomes in healthcare. The study, conducted by the respected think tank Commonwealth Fund, compared healthcare costs and outcomes in the U.S. to nations like England, the Netherlands, France, Canada, Germany, Norway, Sweden, and others. They found that for the fifth year in a row, when it comes to costs, Americans fared the worst of all their counterparts in terms of out of pocket healthcare expense and that we ranked last in everything from infant mortality, maternal mortality, life expectancy, heart disease, diabetes, and other life-altering chronic illness. Patients living in the U.K. fared the best, Scandinavia too. The study found 34% of those polled had avoided or delayed seeing a doctor or failed to fill a prescription due simply to the cost. The study was for the 2011 calendar year and does see some bright spots looming with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. One of the key contributors to high costs and poor outcomes was the high rate of uninsured Americans. As millions of Americans gain access to coverage, primary preventive care will start to positively impact population health, according to the study. But the report also elucidated systemic problems throughout the health care delivery system, 
that need to be addressed before these rankings can meaningfully improve. Meanwhile, another indicator of improved health outcomes is health literacy. The recent spate of newly insured Americans has revealed a chasm between those who've gained coverage and those who actually understand how to use the health care system. A recent survey of Americans and their understanding of health insurance and how it works compared to those who don't is one in 10. This lack of health literacy is being addressed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. They're offering outreach assistance to those having trouble navigating health insurance as well as the health care system. Bike-sharing programs are sweeping the nation's cities. Good for the health of the riders, right? Well, the short answer is yes, unless you forget to bring your helmet. A recent study showed while bike-sharing programs are growing, head injuries are as well. The study looked at bike-related brain injuries in cities with bike-sharing programs versus control cities without those programs. Brain injury in the bike-share cities was up on average 14%. I'm Ariane O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Alan Weil, newly installed editor-in-chief of Health Affairs, a leading peer-reviewed journal on health, health care, and policy. Before that, Mr. Weil was executive director of the National Academy for State Health Policy, NASHP, a nonpartisan organization helping states achieve excellence in health policy and practice. Mr. Weil, an attorney, was director of the New Federalism Project at the Urban Institute, a frequent speaker and author on health reform policy. Mr. Weil co-authored several books, including Federalism and Health Policy, and served on President Clinton's Consumer Commission on the Quality and Healthcare Industry, co-authoring the Patient Bill of Rights. He earned his master's in public policy and his law degree from Harvard. Alan, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. It's nice to be back. Thank yeah. you. And it's been since 2011 when we discussed the Affordable Care Act, and lots has happened since then. We've gotten through the open enrollment period. Uh, Eight million Americans enrolled on and received coverage on the exchange, and five million accessed coverage through uh, Medicaid expansion. If you break it down by states, it's been a patchwork quilt. Only about half of the states choosing uh, to expand Medicaid, and we're seeing uh, many Americans still left out on the promise of health coverage. What's your assessment of the outcomes from uh, state to state, and is that what you envisioned would happen? I don't think anyone anticipated the country splitting quite the way it has, and uh, two elements were certainly not foreseeable by me. The the first, I, I think I have a lot of company on, which is the Supreme Court, after all, is responsible for having made the uh, Medicaid expansion something that states could choose to participate in or not. As the law was written, all states were to expand Medicaid, and we were going to have a uniform national platform of coverage. Now, uh, with the court's uh, rewriting of the statute, they said the federal government cannot tell states that if they fail to expand Medicaid, they'll lose their base funding for the program, and we have uh, what you just described. Um, I I truly don't know a a single person who thought that was where we were going to be at this point. We we knew there was uh, disagreement, obviously, over the Affordable Care Act when it was enacted, but uh, what I didn't foresee was how much states would become a place where uh, even after the law was was enacted and signed, that there would be such a division mm-hmm. uh, about whether or not implementing the law was something states would, were willing to participate in at all. And so you have significant uh, element uh, within the Republican Party that basically said anything you do that is involved in implementation of the law is uh, is anathema. 
that actually you should not take any steps to implement. And that is a big factor, I think, in the division today and certainly not one that I expected. Well, certainly, uh, Alan, during these exciting and uh, tumultuous years of health reform uh, since the Affordable Care Act was was being written and then passed, uh, many of us looked to the journal Health Affairs as our source of information and analysis as developments were unrolling. You obviously are a longtime health policy advocate and expert. You've contributed frequently to health affairs, and now you're the editor-in-chief of uh, what we think of as the peer-reviewed journal for health policy. Now, the journal began back in 1981, and I understand it now receives over 120 million unique visits per year uh, at the website. So for our listeners, maybe tell us a little more about the journal's history, uh, who the major participants and contributors are, and if there's any new directions that you're planning for the publication. You go back to our first issue almost 35 years ago, and we had authors like uh, David Stockman, who was the director of the Office of Management and Budget. We had Dave Durenberger, who was a uh, United States senator from Mm -hmm. Minnesota. Uh, Cap Weinberger had been the secretary of what was then HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare, now HHS. So we started with the luminaries in the field, and I would say we still have them. We call upon a broad uh, cross-section of health services researchers, uh, physicians, and uh, economists, and sociologists, and statisticians. Uh, we cover uh, the range of issues in healthcare as they relate to the policy environment in which we operate. And of course, it's a very busy, exciting place to be right now. As for new directions, uh, you know, mostly I'll say I, I take the helm of this terrific journal uh, that is so strong, I don't need to lay out a big uh, plan of transformation. But I do think we're in an era of uh, faster uh, information where the traditional peer-reviewed journal is uh, coming under fire, both from the time that it takes and the resources it takes, as well as the many distribution channels that are available to those who don't want to subject their work to peer review and want to get the message out uh, much more quickly. And I think uh, navigating that changing environment really is my top priority. You know, let me pull the thread a little on that as you take on the mantle as editor-in-chief and saw uh, an article, I think it's in this uh, uh, issue of how do uh, health researchers use social media. So in this ever-changing world of how readers consume news, sort of where that audience is, not so much on the content side, but on the delivery side, uh, thoughts about that? Even in in the staid position that health fairs is, you you have others who are, who are quite anxious about the transformation and the what it might necessitate for organizations like yourself. Well, we occupy a unique space. And one thing I think we all have to remember is there is not one typical reader Uh, Particularly for the policy work we do, we are reaching uh, CEOs of organizations. We're reaching young staff members on Mm -hmm. Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. We're reaching practicing uh, clinicians around the country and indeed around the world who are trying to understand the changes that are occurring. And I think we all know with the pace of change in how information is distributed and disseminated, those different audiences are looking to different sources. Uh, so I, I, for us, the issue is not we're at place A, we need to go to place B. 
it's making sure that as we think about our audiences, we have appropriate distribution channels for the range of mechanisms that they're accustomed to. Um, our core asset is credibility and nonpartisanship is a very important part of that. Our peer review process, and as long as we build from that core, you know, some people will learn of a new article in our issue because it comes in the mail. Some people will be Googling a topic and they'll find it. Some people will read a blog entry. Some people will read a tweet. At the end of the day, they're all going to the same content. And as long as we retain the quality of our content, I think we can reach people the way uh, they're used to gaining access to information. Let me uh, take a quick look back, if I can, Alan, and you were in the health policy trenches back in 1990 when the Clinton administration uh, took its shot at passing comprehensive health reform. And you've noted that the conventional thinking back then was that the three pillars of reform, improving access, improving quality, and containing costs, were actually competing interests and couldn't be simultaneously achieved. But you've more recently said that the Affordable Care Act has shifted that landscape on these three goals, and perhaps the ACA has made it possible to envision the three pillars of access, quality, and cost shifting from competing forces to actually reinforcing one another. What do you, what do you mean by that? Expand on that thought some for our listeners. It is the concept of, of bringing together these elements as opposed to having them compete. I remember going to dozens of conferences uh, a couple of decades ago where people said you, you can't have a high-quality, affordable system for everyone. Either uh, we can give some people high-quality or we can give everyone something lousy. If we want to give everyone something that's good, we won't be able to afford it. I really believe it's the practice of medicine and the evidence base behind that practice that's changed in these years, along with some good thought leadership. Uh, we now understand that when people get access to appropriate care, uh, they actually stay healthier, and it costs us less, certainly in the long run, and sometimes in the short run, uh, if people obtain care rather than if we deny them care. We've also learned a lot about quality that was in its infancy uh, a couple of decades ago and understanding the problem of overuse. So there's now a framework in the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, not everyone agrees with the approach it takes, but most of the attention goes to the elements of the Affordable Care Act designed to expand access to care through more health insurance. But there are uh, major elements having to do with cost, particularly modifications to the Medicare program, which is the biggest lever the federal government has, um, and major initiatives to improve quality. And the hope, of course, is that we can bring those together in a reinforcing way as opposed to a competitive way. I do think our thinking about those three elements has, has shifted fundamentally with a very positive uh, sense of what's possible as opposed to what I remember, which was sort of a resignation that, well, you know, this is the best we can do. We're speaking today with Editor-in-Chief of Health Affairs, a leading peer review journal. Before that, Mr. Weil was Executive Director of the National Academy for State Health Policy, a nonpartisan organization helping states achieve excellence in health policy and practice. Alan, you focus much of your efforts on improving uh, population health on the state and local levels. Your work at NASHP and the Urban Institute centered on the importance of state policy directors being essential to improve population health. And what do you see in the states? What's exciting about population health? 
Yeah, when I think about the Affordable Care Act, it creates a number of tools that states can use. The coverage expansion creates a financing mechanism to give people access to care. The changes in uh, Medicare payment are a catalyst for thinking about accountability in the healthcare system around population health outcomes as opposed to just paying for each service one at a time. And uh, even states are fairly large uh, units for thinking about population health, but they're they're a lot closer than the federal government. Uh, so between state and local, there are opportunities to think more uh, holistically about uh, the health of the population, and particularly to identify priorities for action. So what I'm struck by as I look around the country is that we can have this high-level policy wonk uh, discussion about accountability, but this only happens if people actually change what they do, mm-hmm. and that's both uh, clinical practice changes as well as individual and community behaviors, uh, mm-hmm. healthier uh, environments. And it's when we start talking about change that we realize you can't change everything at once. And so one of the most powerful efforts that I observe is when a community looks at its own population health statistics and they say, you know, we we really need to focus here on uh, children with asthma who are uh, ending up in the hospital when with appropriate preventive services, they wouldn't have to do that but also with appropriate attention to their housing, uh, with appropriate attention to their uh, access to uh, social supports that would make them more able to respond. Then you can not just generalize about population health, you can harness the resources of the community to actually uh, do something concrete. And of course, there are downsides to that local as well. Uh, Resources often are defined uh, at the national level. But I do think to move past the conceptual, you have to begin to engage uh, locally. I think it ties to something that you've talked about, this uh, federalism in healthcare, And there's been this fierce debate on states' rights that the Affordable Care Act precipitated. So maybe uh, talk to us a little bit about this, this new federalism. And also, do you see the possibility of increased regionalism coming into play around healthcare in the future? Well, we're certainly seeing regional differences in the response to the Affordable Care Act. And many of our largest cities sit on state borders. And so certainly the opportunity to work across state lines to try to solve problems is, is, uh, is a practical necessity. And we do see right now, I I think it would be naive to deny that the Affordable Care Act embraces an activist role for government in the healthcare sector. It says we have a a market failure. We have a lot of people who can't afford coverage, and we're going to solve that by giving resources to those who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. And that broad conception of the word that the state has a has a, a primary role in addressing this social problem that, that not everyone agrees upon, and we have regional differences in the view of that. So uh, some of this is state-federal, but actually much of the tension around the Affordable Care Act is just around public sector versus private sector and the role of government no matter what level. Now, I, what I have not seen is a uh, a serious effort to define an alternative pathway uh, to uh, achieving the goals of the Affordable Care Act. 
the law does allow states to apply for waivers in a couple of years, but in order to get one, you still have to cover as many people with as as, as good coverage as the ACA provides. And on the one hand, the state roles in implementing the law are many, and that's been my focus for, for some time. But a national division over the role of government is a somewhat different discussion than division over whether it should be federal or state. And I actually think a lot of the opposition to the Affordable Care Act is, is much more about role of government than it mm-hmm. is about federal versus state. Do you want to spend a little time talking about payment reform? You know, Massachusetts started off its initial uh, reform really along the same line, and they've had some good outcomes in terms of their access issues. But talk a little bit about the landscape around payment reform. Yeah, well, first of all, it's really happening. Again, the Affordable Care Act was a catalyst. It's happening in the private sector as well as in the public sector. The term often used is accountable care organizations because that's what's in the law. And and the idea is to pay for the care of a population and to reward those who deliver care to that population so long as they are able to maintain or improve the quality uh, of care that that group receives. Uh, They can keep, uh, depending on the payment model, some share of what they save by reallocating their resources without uh, what we used to do, which is just pay for every service delivered regardless of the contribution it made to people's health. So there's no question that this is a real phenomenon, but I do worry that terms like payment reform are uh, a little uh, light on meaning, partly because payment reform is a tool, and the real question is, what's the goal? And then you can ask, given the goal, what kind of payment will support the goal? So we've traditionally paid fee-for-service one piece at a time, and to then uh, reimburse them, pay them for each thing that they do on the expectation and understanding that what they did was valuable. Well, we're now starting to understand, and many physicians would agree, that a lot of what they do is not valuable. And there are many things that are valuable that we don't pay for. We were just talking about social determinants. Uh, Interventions that help people live a healthier life tend not to be paid nearly as well as uh, cutting someone open and fixing something inside their body or scanning them and getting an image of what's inside their body. And so payment reform for what? To enable those who deliver care to think differently about the choices that they make. Uh, But that then gets to questions of accountability. Our quality metrics, and I've uh, had the fortune to to work in the quality arena for a couple of decades now, our quality metrics are still fairly primitive, particularly when it comes to people with complex health care needs. And so we say, well, we'll compensate you so long as the quality remains the same or improves, but but what does quality mean? Again, returning to my uh, federalism roots, I would say that the working out of the meaning of quality and the purpose of payment reform is something that is uh, much better done locally or at the state level than nationally, that our efforts to change payment at the national level tend to be pretty clunky. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're directionally appropriate, but the details are, are, are complex. Um, and they need to be worked out by people uh, or sitting around a table with trust who can say, this is how we're going to measure quality. Yes, this is how patients mm-hmm. view quality. This is how clinicians view quality. Uh, this is a payment model that will support that. That's 
from my perspective, that is uh, by necessity a local discussion, and uh, it's what ties all of these topics together. We've been speaking to Alan Weil, health policy expert and editor-in-chief of Health Affairs, the leading peer-reviewed journal on health policy. You can learn more about his work by going to healthaffairs.org, and you can follow him on Twitter by going to twitter.com slash healthaffairs. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It's been a pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, in a new twist, a Democratic group is attacking a Republican Senate candidate for supporting, quote, government-run health care. That phrase has been a mantra for Republicans attacking the Affordable Care Act and those who support it. But neither this new Democratic attack nor the old Republican ones are true. The Democratic group, Senate Majority PAC, is airing the ad attacking Representative Bill Cassidy, Louisiana Senator Mary Landrews, Maine GOP opponent. It says Cassidy wrote a plan that's been called Obamacare Light. True, it was called that by an opinion columnist, but it's not an accurate description. And the 2007 bill Cassidy wrote while a Louisiana state senator wouldn't have created, quote, government-run health care, as the ad claims, with government bureaucrats making medical decisions. There's nothing like that in the bill, which would have set up a state insurance exchange to serve as a clearinghouse for individuals and businesses buying insurance. The proposal also was a far cry from the Federal Affordable Care Act, which didn't exist at the time. Cassidy's bill didn't include subsidies for low-income people, a mandate to have insurance or pay a fine, or a set of essential health benefits that insurance had to cover, like the ACA. The Louisiana bill called for state officials to come up with new health insurance proposals designed to reach universal coverage in the state. But that never happened. The bill died quietly in committee without even a public hearing. Cassidy, meanwhile, has aired an ad attacking the ACA, saying he voted against it because it would lead to canceled plans, expensive premiums, no guarantee that you could keep your doctor. But that was all true before the federal law was passed. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. According to Michigan organic farmer Michelle Lutz, healthcare spends too much time and money trying to fix the problems that are caused by a poor diet. But the powers that be at the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital agree with her. For years, she had offered organic food growing and cooking demonstrations at the healthcare facility just outside of Detroit. But when officials drew up plans to renovate the hospital three years ago, they decided to take it to the next level. A million dollars certified organic hydroponic greenhouse and garden were built, and Lutz was hired away from her farm to run the operation. We really wanted to change the way that food culture was done in a healthcare setting. 
when you have the opportunity to heal someone, it is very important that what they are eating becomes part of that plan. The facility now provides most of the nutritional organic greens, vegetables, fruits, and herbs used in the food that is prepared there, not just for patients who have come there to heal, but for their families and hospital staff as well. It's rather seasonal. In the wintertime and in the fall, we change to more of a cold-tolerant crop art. And then in the summertime, like this time, we are now transitioning to the point where we're picking cherry tomatoes and we have sweet peppers and things like that that we will be supplying for the kitchen. Lutz says there is an educational component to the program that's ongoing and multi-generational. Right now we are averaging 3,000 students per academic school year that go through our Healthy Habit program. And so we are lucky enough to have kind of a dual combination here of offerings. We have a demonstration kitchen inside of our hospital, and then we have the greenhouse right behind the hospital. So we utilize those components to make sure that we impress upon, especially our youth in our community, what does it take to you know, have the foundation of healthy habits. And hospital chefs work to incorporate more super greens and medicinal herbs into their recipes, reducing their reliance on sugar and salt for flavors. It is not uncommon for a nice day for us to have a nice stream of doctors and nurses out there, number one, just for a reprieve just to be in a beautiful setting and how therapeutic that can be. But to also you know, have them ask questions about what it is that we're growing and how is that being used. The nation's first hospital-based year-round certified organic hydroponic greenhouse, one that provides fresh fruits and vegetables to patients who are healing and the clinicians working to heal them, improving health and well-being for the system community-wide and teaching the next generation about the benefits of organic produce for a healthier diet. The idea of being just a hospital doesn't work anymore. You have to be a community center for wellness. Now, that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.